0: Dr. Cheryl Selman and welcome to The Love Code. This is a program that has the purpose of inspiring you, uplifting you, transforming you and opening the energies for healing in your life. And I'm so glad you're with us today because this is another incredible opportunity with my guest to really allow you to have a profound experience of connecting with your soul. So before I jump into uh this wonderful conversation with my guest, John Cabotson, I'm going to just give you a phone number because this is a phone number that Progressive Radio Network has provided. So you can call in and you can leave a message. You can tell me how much you love the show. You can tell me a suggestion. You can give me some feedback if you have been putting into practice some of the healing strategies that we have been sharing with you on the Love Code. And here's the number, so get your pen handy. It's eight six two eight zero zero six eight. Of course, I would love to hear from you. I'm going to give you that number one more time. It's 862-800-6805. And I do hope you will take a moment and just let me know what your thoughts are about the program, um, whatever. I just would love to hear from you. So having said that, I also want to let everyone know in order to receive these shows, Every week, I invite you to go to my website, which is Dr. Cheryl Selman, or go to my Facebook page, which is What Women Must Know, which is the name of my other program on Progressive Radio Network, and opt in there or like my Facebook page because I send these shows out to you every week, and that just means you can listen to them at your convenience and never miss a show. So that's Dr. Cheryl Selman. If you want to opt in there or go to my Facebook page, um, which is what women must know, just like me over there. Okay, so I am so excited about this show today because I get to have an amazing guest, and that is John Cabotson, Dr. John Kabat-Zinn. If you um, have never heard of Dr. John Kabat-Zinn, I'm going to tell you a little bit about him and we're in for an amazing conversation. So John is the author and narrator of numerous best-selling books about mindfulness and meditation, including the classic, Wherever You Go, There You Are, Mindfulness, Meditation, in Everyday Life. He is founding executive director of the Center for Mindfulness in Medicine, Healthcare, and Society at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. He is also the founding director of its renowned Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Clinic and Professor of of Medicine Emeritus at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. He received his Ph.D. in Molecular Biology from MIT in 1971 in the Laboratory of Nobel Laureate Salvador Luria, and John has contributed to a growing movement to bring mindfulness into mainstream institutions such as medicine and psychology, healthcare and hospitals, schools, corporations, the legal profession, prisons, and professional sports and he teaches mindfulness and the uh, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program in various venues around the world. So it is my great pleasure and honor to welcome John Cabot Zinn to our show today. Hello, John.
1: Hi there, Cheryl. Thanks so much for having me on your show.
0: Well, you are so welcome, and it is a great honor to have you here because I have been following your work for, for many, many years, and you are such a force for good in the world, introducing mindfulness really into, well, you know, I mean, you are, you know, Professor Emeritus, you're bringing this into major medical institutions and universities, which is uh, revolutionary. So my first question Mm -hmm. to you, Don, is how did all this happen for
1: you? Well, Cheryl, you know, usually um, these things always happen for us uh, through some kind of sense of possibility. That maybe you have an insight or a or a dream, especially when you're young, and you think, "What should I do with my life? What what um, would be really worth doing in the world that would add some kind of benefit to it?" And uh, and for me, it was the bringing together of uh, Of science and and uh, and the arts, and um, and seeing whether it might not be possible to understand something about uh, consciousness itself or sentience, our capacity for knowing what it is that we know, which after all is the linguistic uh, etymological foundation for. Um, the species name Homo sapiens sapiens, this spe- species that is aware and knows that it's aware. So this was something that, for various reasons, since I was a child, was very interesting to me. And then when I, when I went to a talk on meditation by the Zen master Philip Caplow at MIT back in 1965, uh, when I was 21 years old, uh, that talk took the top off my head and and pointed me in the direction or helped me realize that this is what I've been looking for my whole life Is there are these meditative practices that come in very sort of powerful form out of the Buddhist tradition but that are truly universal and that we could apply in our everyday life no matter what life trajectory we were on or no matter what kind of uh, uh, challenges we were facing in life. And so I devoted the rest of my you know, life from that point, first of all, to meditating myself on a regular basis. And it's like way more than 50 years later and I never stopped. So it's, you know, usually people get into something and then some other thing comes along and it becomes a fad. But this has not been a fad for me. And it's been also very, very uh, touching that it was partly an experiment to see would mainstream Americans back in 1979 when they started the stress reduction clinic, even be interested, never mind benefit from fairly rigorous training in Buddhist meditation practices without the Buddhism? And the answer came back loud and clear over the first couple of years. Absolutely. I mean, we take to it like ducks to water, and also in part because we're starving for some kind of authentic experience, and this puts you back in touch with the most authentic experience a human being can have, and that is with oneself and in relationship to everything else.
0: Well, how did you convince the the hospital, the university to allow you to
1: to do uh-huh. this
0: very radical thing in the beginning?
1: Yeah, that's a very interesting question and you know, again a lot of that has to do with, you know, I think in part what my sort of CV looked like. It, that I think people projected onto me when I started at the when I proposed this at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center, where I was already working as a postdoc in the Anatomy and Cell Biology Department, doing research but also teaching gross anatomy to the medical students. Which, as a yoga teacher, was something that I had always wanted to do. I even thought of going to medical school just to learn gross anatomy. But I think the, the way I interpreted is that I think people like thought like this. Let's see, he has a Ph.D. in molecular biology from MIT with a Nobel laureate. He must know what he's doing. And because of that very, very privileged position, they kind of let me just join the club, even though I had no credentials for, you know, working with groups or running a medical clinic or anything like that. And then because I was a researcher, I knew we would have to study the outcomes of what people were actually experiencing in various ways. And we started by just, you know, sort of very gross measures of how many symptoms people were having when they came in, you know, what kind of stress levels they were under and how they were eight weeks later when they left. And, and uh, the, the, the outcome was, outcomes were dramatic. A lot of them were chronic pain patients who hadn't had relief in decades and that relief, actually, through follow up studies i mean, sustained itself for not just the eight weeks of the program, which I can explain later if you want to know what m b s r really looks like, but also for years afterwards that people it changed something in their lives because what it's about is paying attention and the awareness uh that extends out of uh, a disciplined kind of paying attention and And uh, so its effects tend to be very long-term, like for the rest of your life. And and I love that. I mean, it's really beautiful.
0: uh, You know, your destiny was unfolding (laughs) at an early age. Yeah, and I never thought of it that
1: way. I just thought, like, you know, this is – I I really did spend 10 years meditating. This is another response to your question from a different angle. I spent 10 years kind of meditating on – what my job on the planet would be with a capital J. In other words, what I would love so much I would pay to do. And, again, I realize that sounds like very, very privileged because not that many people can have the opportunity to ask that kind of question. And I did a lot of different kinds of jobs in those ten years, just knowing none of them were the real job that was mine to do. And then this whole uh, unfolding uh, through the stress reduction clinic, came to me as a, an insight on a, on a meditation retreat after about 10 days of sitting quietly, you know, and walking quietly without speaking. And, you know, so these things happen, and I'm not making myself into some special case. I think this is just part of the repertoire of being human, that we all have what I call these deep interior resources for learning, for growing from what we learn. And for healing, which means in my vocabulary, coming to terms with the way things are, with the actuality of things rather than fixing or curing. And then out of that whole process, uh, transforming our lives. Only we don't have to do the transforming as long as we stay in the process of paying attention in the ways we're talking about with mindfulness. The transforming happens all by itself. And now there's a science of it, which there wasn't when I started out, but there are all sorts of scientific fields uh, which are producing evidence that even very short periods of meditation practice can not only influence kind of what's called functional connectivity in your brain, so brain structure as well as brain activity, uh, but also uh, influence what genes are being, uh, you know, sort of upregulated or downregulated, as they say, in the in the human chromosome in different cells and also having to do with the telomeres at the ends of all of our chromosomes that have to do with cellular aging and the stress enhances that kind of cellular aging and the degradation of the telomeres and meditation practice can slow or even reverse that kind of uh, degradation. And the Nobel laureate, uh, Elizabeth Blackburn from UCLA, who's one of the uh, people to discover telomeres and telomerase and the mechanism of action of it. Uh, she and her colleague uh, uh, Alyssa Apple uh, wrote a whole book called The Telomer Effect about just this kind of thing and how if you care about not so much living to be 200 years old but living well as long as you can, then uh, we have a lot of sort of degrees of freedom in influencing how our own bodies and minds and hearts and lives and relationships unfold. And this was not known thirty years ago. The science was just not developed enough to be able to say that with any degree of confidence.
0: So let's let's start at the beginning for people who are listening and may not know anything about yeah, mindfulness. Good idea. Let's 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 talk about what that is, John. What is mindfulness meditation? Because so many people not only don't know what it is, but I hear all the time, I can't meditate. You know, my mind wanders. This isn't right. for me. So
1: right. let's talk about that.
0: <sighs>
1: Wonderful. Well, let's start with the mind wandering. <laughs> you know, you sit down and you decide, I'm going to pay attention to one thing just for fun, just to see what happens. So uh, what could that one thing be? Well, it could be anything. It could be the sound of the garbage truck outside your window, or it could be, you know, um you know, a ticking of a clock in your room. Or it could be, as most meditative traditions uh, settle on early early in the teaching, you know, uh, your breathing, because the breathing is something like it's very palpable. Anybody can feel their breathing. And the fact is you breathe everywhere, so you can't leave home without it. So it's a very good object of attention. So, okay, we'll just sit down or lie down or... You know, it doesn't matter what posture you're in, but it helps if you adopt a posture that embodies wakefulness and dignity. And then we're gonna just ride on the waves of the sensations of our own breathing. We just feel the breath coming in and feel the breath leaving the body without pushing it or pulling it. In other words, letting it do itself without getting involved in improving how we're breathing. And when you do that, it doesn't matter who you are, you discover, that the mind has a life of its own and it does. It could care less that you've decided that you're going to pay attention to your breathing and it will just wander, as you say. It will wander here, it will wander there. And so the first impulse would be, well, this is no good. I can't do this. I mean, my mind is completely uh, out of control and I must just be one of those people who can not meditate. But the fact is that everybody's mind is like that. Everybody's mind is like that. That's the nature of the thinking mind. Is that it? Unless it's trained to pay attention, it just is very promiscuous and it just gets totally distracted. And this has been true for thousands of years, long before the invention of uh, the iPhone or smart smartphones and stuff like that. Where now the levels of self distraction, with you mentioned Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and everything else. I mean, the level of opportunity we have to not be in the present moment, but to check and see what better thing might be happening some other place, or what people think of us after, you know, we post something, is that distractibility is infinite. And if you think about what the consequences of that are in our lives, it may mean that for the new, you know, uh, digital natives, for instance, you could go your entire life uh, without ever touching base with who you actually are when all the distraction falls away. And this would be a certain kind of tragedy uh, because we're not our thoughts. We're not our emotions. We're not uh, what other people think of us. We're not our profiles on social media, a lot of which is, of course, total dissimulation to make it look like you're somebody else or happier than you are. But how do we actually embrace the actuality of who we are, the good, the bad, and the ugly, (laughs) I like to say, you know, the folk or another movie, the folk catastrophe of the human condition. So sometimes very pleasant, but sometimes super unpleasant, even horribly traumatic, and sometimes so in between or blah or neutral that we don't pay any attention at all. So this is something that as long as you're human and you're, not your brain isn't seriously compromised by some kind of injury or birth issue. Uh, Any human being can do it. And if you do it as a, a discipline, like exercising a muscle, just the way you'd work with a weight to make the muscle stronger, you don't work against the resistance to make the muscle stronger. You work with the resistance. So the weight itself becomes your friend, not your enemy, and your muscle grows so we're cultivating the muscle of attention and the awareness that comes out of it. And mindfulness is simply awareness. It's another synonym for awareness. But it's used instead of the word awareness because it has this 2,600-year tradition within the Buddhist tradition and many other meditative traditions uh, of sort of defining the entire landscape or territory of what the mind does and how it's possible to actually develop all sorts of different uh, ways of understanding what the mind is up to, and then uh, orienting your meditation practice in a way that optimizes, say, uh, what's deepest and best in you as a human being and minimizes those negative self-thoughts and destructive impulses and so forth that actually... Uh, tilt you in the direction of a lot of suffering, a lot of self-generated suffering.
0: Well, is this I, making I sense to that, you
1: the way I'm speaking? Well,
0: of course, and and I, you know, to me, it, I'm, I always marvel about the fact that our culture, as advanced as it is, has never really, until recently, um, understood and and made available a resource like mindfulness, which is non-denominational. It's nothing, you know, it's not related to any, any no, religious. it's really universal. Text. It's universal, but it is a technology that allows us to fulfill the greatest potential we have as human beings. And that is where we have missed out in our Western culture. We, you know, as you were saying, yeah. we get so distracted. So I want, so so you, you. Well, before you, you go any further, this,
1: I just want to underscore what you say that, you know, when you use the word technology, it, you could think of it. And I think it's a good idea to think of it as an in interior technology. Right. And no matter how no matter how beautifully designed the iPhone is you whoever's out there listening all of us as humans we are infinitely more sophisticatedly uh, wired up than the iPhone. We are the most complex arrangement of matter in the known universe including never mind the brain at the top of the head you know which has like 86 billion neurons and trillions and hundreds of trillions of connections that are not static, but completely changing on the basis of what we choose to do and how we choose to live our lives. And so experience directs how our brains learn and how they reshape themselves. And as I said, also other parts of the body. This is amazing. People need to know it, that your listening audience need to know that, like, We're all basically remarkable beings. We're geniuses. And if we get a little depressed or down on ourselves, uh, the part of us that knows that we're depressed isn't even depressed. So we have a whole domain of our own being that's already trustworthy sitting right inside of us. And we could cultivate intimate access to it in a way that doesn't have to fix anything or make your depression or your anxiety or your whatever go away. But actually, it gives you a new way of holding it and realizing you're complete now. You, it's not like 10 years from now you'll get back to being a real human being. You're already okay, no matter what you're dealing with. And now and here is the only time we ever have to uh, to do this kind of interior work. And you have all the tools you need in order to do it. And, of course, if... You're not understanding what I'm saying. As you said, I mean, there are an infinite number of books and guided meditations and audio books and everything else. And all you need to do is find a doorway and enter the room. The important thing is not to stand in the doorway. It's to actually enter the room of practicing and find your own way to do it. So it's not a question of, like, there's a one right way to cultivate mindfulness in your life. I, and, I, again, I love that because it's not trying to – beat people over the head with some special new scheme for how you're going to make the world wonderful all of a sudden or make yourself, you know, healthy all of a sudden, like those New Year's resolutions we've just been through by February, (laughs) which is coming up uh, very soon, um, I think tomorrow, then um, it's gone.
0: I want you to talk about the clinic you've set up, but before you do that, I always want to share that I did a 10-day Vipassana meditation at one point, which is 10 days of working with the breath, mindfulness, meditation, and silence. And what happened to me after, you know, I don't know, day eight or nine of meditating for many hours during the day, my back was really sore. So I was, in a, I was in a lot of pain, and I applied Fine. what I was learning. I just observed the sensations. I didn't label it. I didn't make it. I didn't say it was pain. I just noticed how it was being experienced in my body and and breathed. And what was phenomenal, John, was that there was a moment when that pain disappeared. Yep. And I was experiencing sensations. Yep. i had the same experience. So having said that, I mean, that was a profound moment when I really understood the power when we just observe and quit labeling, we just stay with what is. So having said that, I just kind of want to segue into what you do in the clinic, in your mindfulness-based stress reduction clinic that you have initiated at Mass General. Tell us about that. Tell us what you do there and what happens People. Okay. Who people. Who so, goes and how you get there and what happens?
1: So, first of all, uh, the clinic is called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Clinic, um, and it started out not at Mass General, but at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center in 1979. Now it's everywhere. It's at Mass General. It's at General, all sorts of different places around the world, over 700 that we know of at last count. Uh, And it's a clinic in the form of an eight-week-long course. Uh, And I, you know, and for us at UMass, it's in the Department of Medicine. It's not in the Department of Psychiatry. Medicine took responsibility for the mind-body connection, so to speak. And it's an eight-week-long course where uh, in the old days your doctor referred you, but now people just self-refer, but you... Uh, It's a a clinic in the form of an eight-week-long course where you come to the hospital for uh, eight weeks uh, for a class of, uh, say, two-and-a-half to three hours uh, with about 30 or even sometimes 40 other people, although it could be smaller. Um, And people come with every conceivable diagnosis under the sun, both medical and some psychiatric diagnoses or combinations of them. And then, uh, in addition to the eight uh, classes, there's an all-day session, a kind of mini-retreat, we call it, uh, mostly in silence that happens on the weekend in the sixth week. And um, and as I said, people uh, come with every conceivable human challenge under the sun. And um, we sit in a circle Ordinarily, and people say on the first class why they're there and everybody's listening and you know we're also self-centered that when you start to hear what other people are dealing with it already immediately changes your relationship to what you're dealing with because you can look across the room and see somebody who's obviously suffered much more than you have and is much more in pain and is living life that is extremely limiting in some ways and you say well I could never do and then you begin to be inspired by the way human beings can actually, uh, actually work with distress and work with uh, very severe challenges and chronic conditions and actually um, heal from them. I mean, not let their lives and the quality of their lives be completely eroded by them, and rediscover their own not only humanity, but the wholeness of their humanity, of their humanness, so that they can live integrated, happy uh, lives over the course of, you know, the time we have. <coughs> Excuse me. So that's, that's what the course is. And then, and, and then the curriculum is, is pretty much outlined in my first book, which is called Full Catastrophe Living. Uh, But it basically teaches you these uh, meditative practices, lying down, body scan, uh, sitting meditation, mindful hatha yoga is a large part of it, uh, walking meditation, and then the most important is seeing that meditation and life uh, don't need to be separate and that everything during your waking life could be a form of meditating. I mean, you do have to stop at red lights, so to be aware of the red light, to be aware of the green light, to be aware of sound, to be aware of the look on your child's face, uh, to be aware of the tone of voice as you wake kids up in the morning, to be aware of how much tension you're carrying as you're hurrying to a meeting that you feel late for. Uh, All of these things become wonderful objects of attention, and then the awareness that arises from it allows us to actually modulate and navigate how we are in relationship to both inner and outer experience and that, that brings a certain kind of interior peacefulness to it and that's the reflection in some sense of how the body in many ways is reorganizing itself because your physiology is changing, not just your psychology. And then your relationships so your interconnectedness is also changing because uh, you're paying more attention and listening more deeply, whether it's to your children or to the people who work for you or the people you work for, and therefore able to navigate much more with what you might say emotional greater emotional intelligence or greater social intelligence or interpersonal intelligence. And these things arise naturally because, as we were saying earlier, uh, basically, human beings are geniuses. No matter how much we're hurting, no matter how many deficits we are carrying, it, and we say to people who come to the stress reduction clinic because they come with every conceivable form of cancer and heart disease and chronic pain conditions and failures of surgery and headaches and everything else, we say to them, look, from our point of view, as long as you're breathing, there's more right with you than wrong with you. No matter what's wrong. And what we're going to do during these eight weeks is pour energy into what's right with you, one of which is, of course, that you can be aware, that you can pay attention, uh, that you can bring back a wandering mind when you notice that it's wandered. We're going to pour energy into what's right with you, let the rest of your healthcare team take care of whatever is wrong in terms of drugs, surgery, or anything else, and then at the end of eight weeks, see what happens. So it's kind of like a laboratory, a little experiment. Is my life actually still worth living? Can I actually discover or uncover or recover a way to be me in a way that feels most deeply authentic and not so self-preoccupied and self-absorbed and carried away in my emotional reactivity? And for most people, I would say at least 80%, and sometimes it's even higher than that. It doesn't matter whether you think of yourself as having, you know, less pain or not. Sometimes the people who, in some sense, even don't experience less pain, which most people do, still feel like, wow, but this was an amazing gift that I gave to myself. And it's a lifetime gift to just see that there's a new way for me to be in relationship with what is unwanted, with what is unpleasant, with what I most have the impulse to try to run away from, but can't. And so that's extremely empowering psychologically as well as, as I say, probably biologically uh, powerful in terms of restructuring uh, the sort of various complexities of what's going on in our biology at a cellular level and an organ level. So it's the perfect moment, you know, you were talking about the history. It's the perfect moment for NBSR uh, to sort of arise because – we, as I said, when I started out, we didn't have anywhere near the sophisticated kind of technology of fMRIs and, and uh, understanding um, um, what's called epigenetics and telomeres and stuff like that. Now we can measure this stuff. And, and people are much more motivated to meditate if it's going to rewire my brain than just like I'll just feel good maybe. So that, that I think, the scientific results. Uh, although they're still in their infancy, somehow the press makes a lot out of them, sometimes maybe exaggerates it a little bit. But the general thrust is you know, n- not really disputable that this is really something that is like an oxygen line straight into your own heart and well mm-hmm. worth pursuing. And you have to have that motivation because at first it will just seem like you're dealing with boredom. Like, I'm tired of watching my breath. I don't want to watch my breath or... My mind is driving me insane. And my my response to that is, well, welcome to the club. But take, let's take a look at the boredom. Who's bored? Who's being driven insane? What if you um, drop underneath the boredom or make that the object of your meditation? Then all of a sudden you may discover that you're not your boredom, you're not your anxiety, you're not your depression, you're not your desire to get to some better moment at some future time. Because it's always now, could you actually be at home just for this half an in-breath? And if you can be at home for this half, why not the next half? And then why not the out breath? And then in that way sort of claim or reclaim a foothold in the only life any of us ever have, which is unfolding right in this moment. So I like to say, and I like the, you, you know, your show is called The Love Code, if I if I heard you correctly at the beginning. I like to think of taking my seat in the morning to meditate as a radical act of love. Hmm. Not, not narcissism, not self-love, but a sense of, like, it's a, it's a radical act of love and a radical act of wisdom to just stop for a moment and say, look, I mean, the 24 hours is like running through our moments to get the better moments, but I'm going to stop right now, early in the morning usually for me, and tune my instrument being before I take it out on the road and get involved in doing. And then all the doing that unfolds during the day could be part of the meditation practice because it'll all come out of being. And I know that sounds like, well, it's a lot of words, but when you experience it from the inside, it becomes an art form and it does become a love affair with, say, not missing your life because you're so caught up in your head. And most of what we're caught up in our head is like negative
0: I can't imagine starting my day without meditation to be honest it's become yeah a, I mean what, what I do first thing in the morning if I, you
1: if you were a uh, first violinist in you know the orchestra where your hometown is, uh, you wouldn't. you know the orchestra would not dream of giving a concert without first tuning first to yourself and then to the everybody else in the orchestra so if you think about early morning meditation or starting your day with your own mindfulness practice uh, and yoga could be a mindful yoga could be an important part of it. uh, Then whatever it is, it's like common sensible that you would want to tune your instrument of learning or of interaction with yourself before you start interacting with other human beings. Because if you're out of tune, you know who's going to know it? Everybody. And it's Mm -hmm. going to mess up whatever it is that you are attached to, like the outcome of a meeting or, the outcome of a you know anything even if you're a writer, what you're writing because your mind needs tuning before it can do its best work.
0: There was a time in my life when i was uh, i I would get very emotional i'd get very caught up in my emotions, whether it's depression or fear and anxiety, and then when I started practicing mindfulness, I would I would observe the emotion that was going on, rather than just collapsing into that fear right. or anxiety. Mm-hmm. I would, I would really go, "Oh, isn't that interesting?" You know, and 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 observe it, and not it. take it
1: personally.
0: And, and not take it personally. And it was the key, John, for transforming my life from being an extremely, you know, a, a, you know, a emotionally volatile person and, and spending a lot of time in fear and anxiety and depression to totally changing, so I am not that person anymore. I don't well, get caught up in those well, dreams I, I, I of emotions. Well, I think that your
1: listeners are listening with very big ears because, you know, what you're saying, it, it, you know, is pointing to a truth that isn't just particular to you. Right. But when somebody like yourself, who has so many, you know, devoted followers and fans, can say something like that and just be really straightforward and honest about it, that, you know, that you were caught up in all this stuff and all of a sudden you turned around and held it in a different way and freed yourself from it. That's what this is really all about, is liberation from a certain kind of suffering that we blame on everything else, but actually we are the root cause of. Because of, you know, uh, not being willing to turn towards what's difficult and then hold it in a different way. And not knowing that we have the capacity to do that. You don't even need, a, you know, a special friend in order to hold your hand or, you know, somebody to be your meditation teacher. You can find this stuff. The real teacher is life itself and the real beauty is inside you, every single one of us. And that's why like, this is not about heroes, it's not about superstars, it's not about people who write books or do this kind of work or, you know, on television with infomercials. This is about where the rubber meets the road on whether you're living the life that's yours to live or not. Because it's very easy to live for decades at a time, lost in thought and caught up in narratives that we tell ourselves which are just not true. And then you die. And then you, right before you die, you realize, oh, my God, I got it all wrong. And Thoreau said that in Walden. He said exactly that as the reason he decided to go off to Walden in the first place. So this is something that I think whose time has come, so to speak. And, and we really, uh, I'm, I'm glad we're having this conversation because I think Your listeners out there really need to understand this is not you interviewing some other personage about something that's interesting to you and to me. This is really putting our finger on the pulse of something that has to do with our basic humanity and and our health and well-being. And also it has other ramifications in terms of how we are with each other socially in the country and since the country is being so polarized and pulled apart in so many ways, where is the kind of way in which we recognize the humanity and others who somehow seem deluded or don't, don't have the same view that we do. And then we can project onto them that not only are they deluded, but maybe they're hardly human because they don't think the way we do. And that's happening inside of families across the country now. And I think we need a, much, much bigger way of recognizing our own consciousness and capacity to hold the what we most don't like in a way that actually finds can help us find a common humanity and a common kind of kindness and compassion in working with each other in the face of very scary forces that are of, uh, at work in the world these days.
0: So... Tell us a bit about the research and about how mindfulness. Now that we have the brain functional brain scans, now now that we can look at what's happening within us. After you know a 2,600 year old tradition, maybe longer than that, that had yeah. known this, but now in our scientific, <laughs> you know, uh, 21st century world, we we have evidence of profound transformations that happen in the brain from meditations that have the ability to bring about changes that, you know, within us and how we operate in the world. So can you share yeah. a bit of what that research is telling us about mindfulness? Sure. Sure. And and
1: <clears throat> uh this may be an appropriate place to say that, you know, uh a lot of this stuff is in a book that came out just a month or two ago called The Healing Power of Mindfulness, The New Way of Being, uh, where I uh, summarize some of the studies that uh, I was involved in uh, developing along these lines. And then, um, as I mentioned, uh, uh, other people like Elizabeth Blackburn and Elizabeth um, and Apple have come out with a book called The Telomere Effect." Uh, Dan Goldman and Richie Davidson, both long, old friends of mine, and Richie's the head of the Center for Healthy Minds at the University of Wisconsin, came out with a book called Altered Traits last year. Uh, there are so many different domains, and all of it's mentioned in The Healing Power of Mindfulness. So let me begin by just uh, featuring uh, uh, several studies that that I was involved in. One has to do with the skin disease, psoriasis, where... You know, psoriasis uh, is an uncontrolled uh, proliferation of cells in the epidermis and nobody really understands its biology except that certain nerve growth factors might be involved and it has sort of what you might call kissing cousin uh, genes with uh, basal cell carcinoma, which is pretty scary because that's skin cancer. But psoriasis is not... Cancerous, uh, but it does give these unsightly patches on the skin, sometimes covering large amounts of the body. and um, And the treatment for it is ultraviolet light. There's no cure, but ultraviolet light slows down the rapidly growing cells and epidermis. And that's why you see a lot of Scandinavians at uh, at the at the uh, Dead Sea in uh, in Israel in Jordan because uh, it's uh, 400 meters, 12,000 feet below sea level, so the UV is filtered and you don't burn as much. But a lot of their health insurance sends people with psoriasis Mm -hmm. to the Dead Sea for months at a stretch to get this ultraviolet. So, uh, you know, in the U.S., what we use are light boxes that are kind of like the old-fashioned phone booths, but circular and where you stand naked in a light box with ultraviolet light bulbs all around you, and you get kind of toasted or roasted in this oven for increasing periods of time, starting with just a few seconds to up to 15 minutes. And we thought, well, why not randomize people between they just standing in the light box naked with with their eyes shaded because the the ultraviolet's not good for your eyes, corneas, versus uh, people who are listening to a guided mindfulness meditation standing uh, practice while they're in the light box. And what we found was that the people who are listening to the guided standing meditation while they're standing there <laughs> being cooked uh, for increasing periods of time, their skin cleared four times at four times the rate of the people who are just getting the light treatment by itself. So it's kind of like a dramatic uh a dramatic uh, sort of evidence that something you're doing with your mind can actually influence a biological process right down to the level of gene expression, which, of course, is relevant not just for psoriasis but for basal cell carcinoma or many other sort of undesirable physiological things that are going on in the mind. So that kind of uh, began a certain kind of uh, thread, research thread around the whole question of how much can we change the biology or experience what the biology of healing is if we bring mindfulness to it. Another is a randomized uh, control trial that we did at a corporation in Madison, Wisconsin in collaboration with Richard Davidson and his group looking at people, uh, fallen, people who uh, are uh, working at this biotech company and we did a randomized controlled trial, the first one of MBSR, in the workplace showing that people who just got uh, MBSR, uh, who just got uh, sort of a weightless control, they didn't change at all. But the people with the MBSR uh, actually not only had reductions uh, in anxiety, but changes in the brain uh, and immune system that were in the direction of what we interpret to be healthier or greater healing. There was uh, a shift in the brain from more right activation to left activation, uh, or the other way around, I can't remember at the moment, Uh, but uh, in regions that have to do with emotional reactivity. So in a very positive direction, and also we gave people a flu vaccine and demonstrated that the meditators uh, mounted a a stronger immune response to the uh, flu vaccine at the same time. And that there was a direct correlation between the degree of brain shift from uh right to left and the degree of uh immune activity uh over the course of the retreat and that uh, of the eight weeks and that that uh, was maintained for at four months follow up so these are kind of uh experiments that are basically demonstrating that people uh do change biologically when they are meditating for such periods of time. My colleague, Judd Brewer, who recently moved from UMass to Brown uh, and their mindfulness center, has shown that mindfulness practice can drive what's called functional connectivity. I mentioned it earlier, where uh, meditation practice can actually help you reconnect regions of the brain to each other (coughs) that can be very helpful in terms of uh, regulating your attention, regulating your emotion, uh, de- developing sort of a, a keener uh, appreciation of what's important in the present moment, something called salience, that all of these sort of networks in the brain are actually very plastic and can change on the basis of the kind of mindfulness training that uh, we're talking about. So, uh, so if people are interested, I mean, I recommend that they just kind of uh, find some of the um, these books that, that summarize these kinds of things. But most important is to just, once you see what the data says, to do your own experiment by sitting down with your own mind and seeing uh, whether you can put out the welcome mat for what's going on with you without trying to fix it or force it or change it to be different. And then just seeing what happens over, say, an eight-week experiment in your own life as to whether it adds some kind of value or other. Symptom reduction being a very big one.
0: No, go ahead. Go ahead, John. No,
1: well, long before we were doing these kinds of studies with using fMRI or, you know, epigenetics, we were just counting the numbers of symptoms that people with chronic medical conditions would come in with before the eight-week program and after the eight-week program, and we were seeing major self-report reductions of 50%. I mean, that was, like, incredible. It strikes me, okay, that I should probably also mention that uh, Melissa Rosencrantz, who is a colleague of Richard Davidson's at UMass, I mean, I'm sorry, at the University of Wisconsin, uh, did a study uh, with a kind of uh, neurogenic inflammation uh, in the lab by injecting capsaicin, which is the active ingredient in uh, chili peppers, hot chili peppers, under the skin, which forms a kind of blister. And it's not painful, but uh, you, it really is unsightly. And then testing that in people who are trained in MBSR versus not trained in MBSR and finding that people who are trained in MBSR show – Uh, no change versus the control in their self-reported measures of improvement, both the control, which is a kind of uh, attentional control, which means it's designed to be the same as MBSR's eight-week program in every respect except for the meditation training, so that it's a very stringent kind of control, and they found that, yeah, you don't see any self-report differences between the two groups, but you see the biological difference of the people trained in MBSR actually show um, a faster healing response to that induced blistering than the people who just got the, uh, the uh, what was called the uh, health enhancement uh, control, uh, health enhancement program uh, that uh, talked about all this stuff uh, but not the mindfulness So that's, like, really pretty sophisticated uh, data showing that um, mindfulness goes far beyond self-report measures and probably influences our biology in ways that you can't mimic just by um, paying attention to, you know, just by talking, for instance, or thinking or reading about how how, uh, important it is to take care of your health. It's, it's so inspiring. Thing. So my apologies for you know, at this point in time just uh, having a little don't, bit of a cough.
0: No need to apologize. That just is what is. It part of, <laughs> so exactly. It part we let that. it flow with it. everything else <laughs> yeah, because it's also inspiring. And audience, and I, y- you know, John. It just as you share this, and you know the 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 uh, profound ramifications. For everyone in every aspect of life, when we begin to understand the power that we have within us, and it's yeah. a yeah. simple it 's a simple tool, but it takes the willingness to just be consistent and and I want us to talk about um the audio books you have because what I really want people to do who are listening is to is to do it, is to try it. Find a way. And you have put together some very um, beautiful audio books that can guide people into this mindfulness place where the changes can happen in your life. Physically, emotionally, mentally, Well,
1: thank you for for saying that. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's really um, what I most care about is giving people kind of easy access to these deep interior resources that we all share, that we all have by virtue of being human. So what we're talking about is a four-book uh, series, that uh, the last of which is coming out um, uh, very soon on, on, on February 5th. Uh, and um, the first one is called uh, – the first one is called uh, – Meditation is Not What You Think. The second one is called Falling Awake. The third one, uh, which is mostly what we've been talking about uh, today, is called The Healing Power of Mindfulness. And the fourth one is called Mindfulness for All, and that really talks more about the potential for uh, a, mind, a more mindful politics and a more mindful economics and so forth. So it covers a wide uh, range of uh, of topics, but all of these are, as you say, audiobooks. So they're available for listening as well as reading. And and I thought, you know, I I should do them myself. So I actually spent endless days in the studio, uh, luckily broken up months apart, to get these out. Uh, and where it's my voice doing the reading, so that um, in a sense, listening to these books is a little bit like. A guided meditation so that you're entrained. The listener is entrained into not only the meaning of the sentences, but in a certain way, their own interior experiences of what's being voiced. And then there are, of course, also guided meditations that are out there available to my website, uh, where uh, or any place else where you know uh, people can get a hold of. My series one, series two, or three, or series three guided meditations that all are different doors in the same into the same room, so to speak, as I said earlier, uh, and that you know that then there are many other people out there who are also providing these kinds of things. So as I said earlier, it doesn't really matter what door you go in. The most important thing is to enter the door of your own heart. And then, you know, some people you might resonate with, some voices you might resonate with, others less so. But ultimately, it's really about you befriending yourself. And all of us out here being glorified cheerleaders or, in some sense, just uh, available um, sort of companions to help guide you to the point where you feel like, okay, I can drive this on my own. I'm, I'm, I'm in it. And I'm in it basically for life because... Life is in it for life, and so we might as well make optimal use of all of our moments while we have them. So, uh,
0: so, so, John, what is the best website for people to go Well,
1: it would be uh, – there are several ways to get to it, but uh, one is myname.com. So it would be J-O-N-K-A-B-A-T hyphen Z-I-N-N at uh, n.com, com. And another way is uh, mindfulnesscds.com, because at one point it was selling CDs. Now, you can't buy any of this stuff on the website, on um, that particular website, but you can get it at the App Store or various other places uh, uh, or Amazon. But, uh, but this will kind of give you explanations about what everything is.
0: That's great. You know, as you're talking, it reminds me of the saying that I, that I have. Uh, I think it comes from commercial when I was in Australia. And it says, if you never, never go, you'll never, never know. And that, yeah. to me, sums up everything we've been talking about today. It's like if you do not give this a chance... And, and open yourself and explore new possibilities. You never know what possibilities are waiting for you for healing, for healing your body, relationships, for transforming business, for transforming your own emotional pain, whatever. So, um, so if you never, never know, if you never, never go, you'll never, never know. Uh, please be open, everyone listening today, to this wonderful gift that John has given us in his dedication over the many many years Uh, john thank you so much for the wonderful work you are doing in transforming our societies bringing more happiness to everyone more healing and for your time today i'm very grateful to have you on the show
1: well thank you cheryl it's been my absolute privilege to converse with you in this way
0: and, uh, and thank you to all my listeners for joining me for another wonderful experience on The Love Code. I will be back next week. And until then, I wish you all love, peace, and harmony. Bye for now.